So we're in a series called How to Neighbor, and uh, just to, to give you some foundation for this series, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 22. And in Matthew 22, um, we see this story that, uh, that is so central to uh, our call as followers of Jesus. It says that hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So the Sadducees were one group of religious leaders who, who didn't believe in a res- resurrection, and the Pharisees were another group who did believe in a resurrection. They were basically rivals. And so Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. He had established the resurrection, that, that there was going to be life after death. And so now the Pharisees came to try and, and do something to Jesus. It says, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him, him being Jesus, with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? So if you've ever read the, the Old Testament, the, the first five books of the Old Testament are what is considered the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. For the Jews, uh, they call it the Torah. It is the foundation of their faith. It is the Mosaic law, the law that was given through Moses. Um, if you've read that, you know there's a lot of laws in there. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of rules. Our God is a, is a detailed God. Um, and so this, this religious leader comes to Jesus, this Pharisee, and says, what's the most important command of all? He's trying to trick him. He's trying to prove that Jesus values one over another. Well, Jesus replies in verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Um, we know if we're Christians, if we call ourselves Christians, hopefully, if you believe you're a Christian in this room, you would say, I love God. Hopefully, if we, if we went around with the microphone, most of us in this room would say, you know what, I love God. Maybe I've got some weaknesses, I've got some struggles, I've got some areas that maybe aren't as where I want them to be, but in my heart, I love God. And so the, that's where it starts, right? It starts with the love for Him, to love Him with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. God doesn't call us to be perfect. He does call us to put Him first, to give him all that we are, uh, even in the midst of our imperfection. Um, But then he doesn't stop there. It would be so easy and convenient for him to stop there. He says this is the first and greatest commandment, but the second is like it. In other words, the second is on the same level. The second is of similar importance. And in fact, I think what he's saying is the two are inseparable. You can't have this one without the next. He said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, in our vertical love for God, and our love from us to heaven, that, that's so important. Our worship is so important. Our, our decision to honor God is so important. But he says the proof of that is how do you love your neighbor? How do you love the person who is next to you? You cannot have one without the other. I'm going to give you a principle that's going to help you as we go through this series. Hopefully you were here last week. We talked about empowering the poor, as John just kind of spoke on, and If you weren't here, man, go back and check out that podcast. I highly encourage it. Um, Next week, we're going to talk about embracing orphans, those who who are without parents and how we can actually come involved and and come alongside them and be a blessing to orphans. Week four, as we wrap up the series, we're going to talk about reconciling races. We have so much racial division and so much divide in our nation. We're going to talk about how God has called us to be one. God has called us to be unified. We just sang about it. Nothing can stop your church when we are one. Uh, So we are believing that God's going to use us to be agents of reconciliation. But as we go through this series on how to neighbor, how to neighbor well, um, here's an underlying principle that I think is going to help all of us, and that is this, that we love our invisible God by loving our visible neighbor. We love our invisible God by loving our invisible neighbor. We can't see God, and, and sometimes it's hard to know, how can I actually express this love to him? How can I actually show him my love? Well, what he's demonstrated, what he's said, is that we love him, though he's invisible, by loving the person that we can see. 
by loving the people who are next to us, by loving the people who are around us. So we're going to try, we're going to aspire and shoot to love our neighbor well. So today we're talking about loving the lonely, the lonely. When we go back to the beginning, all the way back to the the creation story, I think there's so much in this. And we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. Many of you may know this, but God creates the, the world in six days, right? And he rests on the seventh day. And at the conclusion of each day, he creates light and he creates dark. He creates land and he creates sea. He creates this type of animal and this type of plant and this other type of animal. At the conclusion of each day, what does God say? He says, it is good, right? He looks down at what he's done and he says, it's good. Except there's one point in the creation story where he says something significantly different. There's one point where God looks down and he says, it is not good. And that's in Genesis chapter 2 when God looks at Adam, this man that he has made, and he said it is not good for man to be what? Alone. The first problem in creation, the first issue that comes up, even before sin comes into the world, is God looks down and he recognizes man should not be lonely. Man needs a companion that we are not wired to do this by ourselves. We're not even wired to just do it with him. Adam had this incredible relationship with God, but God said, it's not enough. You need someone like you. You need a helpmate. You need someone to come alongside you to be intimate with, someone to know you and to be known by. And so he creates Eve. And then at the end of day six, after he's created Adam and Eve, God looks down and he says, it is what? It is very good. So creation went from from not good with Adam alone to very good, a complete 180-degree turn just by what? By companionship, by relationship, by connection, by having a neighbor to love and to love well. And so this is so central to who we are. It's so central to our identity, to our need for connection. And I've discovered over the last few weeks a term that's very intriguing to me, and I've done some research on it and, and trying to dug in, tried to dig into it, but uh, sociologists have, have identified a new issue, specifically in our generation. It's not that this has never existed before, but it's, uh, it's very unique in our generation, the levels that this is an issue, and it's especially an issue in the Western world, in the first world, in, in the, the world that we live in, in America, and places like this, and they have this term they call relational poverty. Relational poverty. Last week we talked about physical poverty, material poverty, right? And it's this, this lack of having the things that you need to make it through the day. I can't pay my bills. I can't have a house. I can't eat. Whatever that might be. It's this lack of something, and it creates this, this hopelessness, this despair that John spoke of. Well, relational poverty is the lack of significant connection, the lack of significant relationships to the point that life loses its meaning. See, life is designed to be meaningful, but when we don't have meaningful relationships, when we don't have meaningful friendships, when we don't have meaningful partners to do life with, life becomes dull, it becomes numb, it becomes, it loses its meaning. And so we have this epidemic of relational poverty in America. And so if I were to ask you, who, who are, who's lonely in our world? Most of us would probably think about people somewhere on the margins of society, right? We think about people who are extremely old, who are in rest homes. Well, those people are lonely, and that's true. Or we think about people who are extremely poor, the homeless, who live out on the street by themselves, and their families abandon them, like John said. And that's true, right? That those people are extremely lonely. But what sociologists say is that loneliness is not unique 
to people on the margins of society anymore. That loneliness has spread throughout all levels, all demographics, all age groups, all generations. That loneliness is a common thread throughout our American first world culture. It might be the college student who lives on a campus with thousands of other students. But, but I'm on a floor and there's kids all around me. There's young people all around me, but I don't feel like I'm known by any of them. It might be someone in a dysfunctional marriage that you share a bed with someone, but, but that bed is cold. Your heart is cold that there's nothing there in that marriage. It might be the 15-year-old kid uh, whose, whose parents didn't leave. I've got mom and dad, but they're not interested in my life. They're completely caught up in their own things, and this child feels this extreme loneliness. It might be a successful business person who's risen to the top of their field. They've got all the degrees hanging on their wall. They've got the big paycheck. They've got the position that everybody else wants, but in the midst of it, they have no meaningful relationships. And so relational poverty is this thread that runs throughout so many. Um, It's when you have people around you, but you don't feel like you have anyone who knows you, who cares about you, no one who you can trust. It's a huge problem, especially in the first world. So why? Well, sociologists have identified a bunch of theories. I'm going to give you four that I think are significant. Four reasons why relational poverty is such an issue in our generation. The first one is this. It's the breakdown of families. So as you probably know, around 50% of uh, marriages in the United States end in divorce. So what happens when two people divorce? Well, there's not just a severing of that one very significant relationship. There's many secondary relationships that are severed. Wife gets the church. Husband has to find a new church. Or, or, or the husband gets these group of friends, and the wife has to find a new group of friends. And there's all these relationships that are severed, e- even the in-law relationships. Many times, we, you know, in-laws get a bad reputation, but a lot of times people find very significant relationships with their sister-in-law or their brother-in-law or their father-in-law. And then those relationships, if not completely severed, are extremely strained through the divorce, and so people lose very significant relationships as families break down. The second reason in our culture why we have such relational poverty is increased mobility. Uh, it used to be there were generations not that far back where, where if you were born in a town, you would probably die in that town, and it's probably the same town that your parents lived in and the same town that your grandparents lived in and the same town that your family lived in for generations. Well, that's not our society anymore, and I, I laugh at this one a little bit because I've moved around quite a bit. I've lived in, I think, five different states and different corners of the country, and, and I can identify with this. And it's really funny to me because City Church, in large part, is a church of transplants. There are a ton of people here who aren't from here. Now, there are some people who are from here, and you're awesome, but it's funny that God's given us, like, this great heart for Olive Branch and for this city because most of us ain't even from this city, but this is where God's placed us. This is where God has brought us. But we can identify. There's so many of you in this room I know that can identify with, with the relational poverty that comes from moving. And these significant relationships are left behind. These significant friendships are, are, are maybe not completely lost, but they change significantly and are not easily replaced. The third reason that sociologists give is heavy workloads. Um, if I were to ask you, how's it going? A lot of you in this room, the first thing out of your mouth would be busy. How you doing? Busy. What's going on in your life? Man, I'm just busy, right? If you were to ask me in a moment of honesty, a lot of times that would be the first word out of my mind. Man, I'm busy. We, we've got so much going on, and it's not just the work world, because we actually work few hour, fewer hours than other generations did, but we fill those hours with so many other activities. So much else is going on, and ball teams, and, and kids' sports, and kids' activities, and, 
all of this stuff, and we've got so much that we have very, very little room to get to know people. Used to be everybody on a street knew each other. You knew every one of your neighbors. You knew everybody's name. You knew who lived where and probably knew something about their business. That's not necessarily the right way to do it, but that's how it used to be, right? People were known. Today, I bet half of us in this room don't know the guy who lives across the street. Like, you might know their name, but you probably don't even know what they do for a living. You probably don't know if they go to church, where they go to church. Like, we have such insignificant relationships, even with our our physical neighbors. And this series isn't just about getting to know the person on your street. It's being a neighbor. It's loving our neighbor. But I think that's a a very practical application. But we fill all of our time to where we don't get to know people. The fourth one uh, I certainly can identify with as well, and it's the rise of technology and specifically social media. Used to be you spent a lot of time out on the front porch, and you'd get to know people. You'd interact with people. Now we've got TV. We've got computer. We've got Facebook, Instagram, whatever. And I'm not telling you to go home and delete your Instagram or get rid of your Facebook account. What, what I am saying is this. Sociologists say that, that what those, for many, what those social media networks become is they become kind of a delay uh, of loneliness. They become almost like, an, 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 um, like a shot, like a inoculation against loneliness. So I can get on Facebook, I can get on Twitter, I can interact with these people on this very surface level. There's no depth to it. A lot of times there's no reality to it. This very, very surface level, and I can kind of dull the pain of my loneliness. I can forget about my loneliness for a second and think I'm actually interacting, but in the process, what I'm not doing is actually building any significant relationships. I'm not actually building any deep and real connection. And so all these things, again, they're not necessarily bad things, but they've led us to a place in our culture where loneliness is a massive problem. So if, if relational poverty and loneliness is a problem, what's the fix? How do we love the lonely? What I want to do today is I want to give you three things that we can do, three ways that we can love the lonely, three things that we're actually going to look to the example of Jesus, ways that he loved the lonely in his world, um, and look to his model and say, you know what, we are going to love the lonely in these three ways. There's many other things we can do. I'm certainly not saying this is the limit to it. But I think this is a great place for us to start. And so I want to do something a little bit different today. In fact, I don't think I've ever done this uh, at this point of a message before. I felt God laid this on my heart this week, so we're going to try it. Um, normally, we might pray at the kind of the beginning of a message or at the end of a message. We're like 50% into the sermon today, and I don't think I've ever prayed halfway through a message. But this is what we're going to do today. And here's why we're going to pray at this point. Because I believe all of us have some lonely people in our world. For some of you, it might be the person sitting next to you or two rows away from you. In fact, what I told our team this morning as we prayed over today's uh, service is if we don't get this in here, we'll never get it out there. If we can't be the church, and we're going to sing, we will be the church and rise, we'll seek out the forsaken, we'll not be found complacent. If we're going to sing that, but we can't even get to know somebody that we go to church with, we're never going to apply it in the real world, right? Not that church is in the real world, but you know what I mean. You feel me? So, so maybe for some of us, it's just going to be, man, taking that step, that finding that courage to invest in a relationship in this room, inviting somebody for coffee or, or over for dinner or whatever that might be. God may put somebody on your heart. Maybe for, for you, it's going to be somebody that you work with. There's that, that one person who's a little more introverted than everybody else at work, and they just kind of sit off in the corner, and, and nobody really reaches out to them. God's going to put that person on your heart, or it's going to be that young person who's got parents, but the parents are completely caught up in their own life, and that kid's just starving for somebody to notice them, just starving for somebody to invest in their life to say, you're significant, you matter, but God's going to put somebody on our heart. I believe every one of us in this room, if we'll pray, 
and we'll open our heart and say, you know what, God, I want you to show me who is that lonely person, who is that hurting person uh, in my life. We're going to ask God to do that. Uh, So would you join me in prayer this morning? Father God, I thank you that you care about people. God, that you even say that we can't just focus on our love for you, but that if we truly love you, we're going to love others. God, people are so central to your heart. And so, God, we ask that you would share your heart with us today, God, that that we would get a dose uh, of the love of Jesus in us today, God, that, that we would even have our hearts break for the lonely, for the relational poverty in our world. God, we pray through your Holy Spirit that you would begin to put names on our heart or faces on our heart, or relationships on our heart, God, of, of somebody in our world, whether it's that grandparent in a nursing home, or, or whether it's that person sitting uh, across from us at church, or whoever it might be, God, that, that we would seek out the lonely. God, that we would be proactive and not reactive, that we wouldn't wait for somebody to say, hey, I need help, but we'd lean into you, the, your voice and hear from you and reach out, Father God, and make the impact that you've called us to, God, that we would neighbor well, Lord, that we would love you, the invisible God, by loving our visible neighbor. We thank you for helping us with this today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, so how do we do it? There's, there's so many ways that we can do this, but we're going to look at three specifically this morning. The first one is this from the, the life of Jesus. We are going to love with touch. We're going to love the lonely with touch. Uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 8, there's a, a very interesting story. Uh, Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus, he's constantly healing people, right? He's constantly doing miracles. He's constantly doing these incredible things, and he does them in different ways from time to time, but the majority of them, he just speaks. He just opens his mouth. The centurion comes to him and says, hey, my, uh, my servant is sick. All you have to do is say the word, and he'll be well. And so he's in some other city, but Jesus speaks, and the servant is healed. Even the dead, Jesus comes into to the, the ground where Lazarus is buried. Lazarus is laid in the tomb, and Jesus doesn't have to roll away the stone and go in there and touch Lazarus. He doesn't have to conjure something up. All he has to do is say, Lazarus, come forth, and boom, life comes back into his body. He's got the power in his words to do any healing. And yet here in Matthew 8, we see Jesus do something a little different. It says, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So so what's going on with leprosy? Let's give us a little context here. Leprosy isn't really an issue in, in our modern first world. Um, thankfully, it, it's, we found cures for it, and we figured out how, how to help it. 2,000 years ago, there wasn't a cure other than Jesus. 2,000 years ago, if, if you got leprosy, it was a death sentence. It was about a 10-year incubation period, about 10 years from the time that you got infected to the time you would die. Now, some were earlier, some were later, but that was the, the rough time span. Um, it starts with which is fatigue and pain in your joints, and, and then your skin would start to get kind of scaly and, and begin to flake off. Then you'd get lumps filled with pus after your skin fell off. Uh, eventually, it would get to the point that your face begins to actually change its structural shape. If you've ever seen somebody who's had leprosy for a very long time, they don't even totally look human. They're, they're, there's something that's happened to the face structure that can be very difficult um, to even look at. Uh, it, It it then goes on to affect your voice and your vocal cords. It will change the nature of your voice. You don't sound the same. And finally, as it gets ready to to take you to death, your body begins to decompose even while you're alive. Now, that's why if you're familiar with leprosy, you know, it's associated a lot of times with missing fingers, missing toes, even missing arms 
and legs. And so what they used to think, this was uh, actually in the last 100 years they found out this isn't the case, but they used to think that leprosy made your limbs or your appendages fall off. That's not what happens. What happens is leprosy eats away at your skin uh, and at the nerves in your body where you can't feel anything. And then leprosy, because it's so highly contagious, people are always kind of kicked out of their community. They're living on the streets somewhere. They're, they're living uh, in, in terrible situations. And so then that rotting flesh, while they're asleep, attracts rats. And rats will actually come, and because they can't feel it, they don't wake up. The rats will come and actually eat their fingers, their toes, even eventually their arms and their legs. And that's why people do things through leprosy. Devastating disease. Horrible disease, just life-sucking disease. Um, but it's so devastating because not only does it destroy your body, it destroys your relationships. You no longer can be around the people you love. You are completely banished from your community. And so this guy, this is who comes to Jesus. We have to understand the context. This is the individual. We don't know how long he's had leprosy. We don't know how far along the process is. But he's had it long enough. He's been identified as a leper. He's been kicked out of his community. The only people who are around him are lepers. So he even takes a tremendous amount of courage just to come up to Jesus and say anything. He's breaking the law just to speak to Jesus right now, just to encounter someone who doesn't have leprosy. And so he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You can fix all of this. You can make me well. He cries out in desperation, understanding that Jesus has authority even over his disease. And look at how Jesus responds. Matthew chapter 8, verse 3, it says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Jesus, who has the ability to just speak and just say, be well, be healed. And all of a sudden, the leprosy is gone. Jesus chooses in this moment to reach out and touch the man. He says, I am willing, be clean. And immediately it says he was cleansed of his leprosy. Why did Jesus have to touch him? Why was that so important in that moment? Well, well, I believe that this individual with leprosy and probably anyone with leprosy didn't just need to be healed of the physical disease. He needed to be healed of his emotional rejection. He needed to be healed of the fact that That he's been sent away and nobody will talk to him. Nobody will be around him. The people who matter in his life will not even speak to him anymore. And so Jesus, in his incredible love for this man, reaches out and touches the man with this highly contagious disease. And he heals him. I think there's so much power in human touch. I think it can be incredibly significant. I had coffee this week with a man named Chris Sasser. Chris and his wife, Katie, spent the last seven years as missionaries in Africa, five years in Uganda and two years in Kenya. And they're in a season of transition. God's uh, moving them to Bosnia and Herzegovina. They're going into a nation as missionaries that that has ten evangelical churches in the entire nation. And they're going to go in and begin to help the churches there and begin to plant churches and and spread the love of Jesus to people who are are very, very uh, far from God. Uh, And so I got a chance to talk to them about all the things that are going on and got a chance to talk to them about the things that they did in Africa. And so the last two years they were in Africa, they were in Kenya, uh, which is a nation on the coast. They were actually in a city called Mombasa, which is on the, the coast in Kenya. And the reason they were in Mombasa is they were working with an organization that was there to help lepers. Uh, there had been an outbreak of leprosy about 25, 30 years ago across East Africa. And all of the African nations sent their lepers to Mombasa. Mombasa was basically the leper colony for the continent. 
Uh, so they sent all their lepers into Mombasa. And over the last 25 years, these World Health Organizations have come in, and they've basically eradicated the disease. Uh, they, they've declared that leprosy is no longer prevalent on the African continent. So these people are healed of the disease. They've gotten the treatment that they need. Um, however, they can't go back home because the villages still are afraid of them. There's still this fear that you had leprosy, they don't have the scientific understanding, and so these people are, are completely isolated from their families. They're isolated from their old lives, even though they've been healed, and of course they have scars from, from the, the leprosy and what it has taken from them. And so they, what Chris said, which was so significant and so interesting to me, and he had no idea I was even preaching about this, but he said one of the most amazing things as we worked in Mombasa is we came in and these people who have been discarded by society, who've been overlooked, who've been rejected. He said, all we would come in is just shake their hand and hug them. And you wouldn't believe the impact it would have on their life to simply touch someone who's been told he's untouchable. Uh, and so I actually brought a picture that he sent me. This is his wife, Katie, and a man, and I can't pronounce the guy's name, but you can see um, he's actually missing a, a finger on his right hand there. But this is just Katie, just, just holding his hand. He said, this man would be so full of joy when we would just sit with him and just touch him and show him that he wasn't broken anymore, that he wasn't contagious anymore, that there wasn't something wrong with him anymore. He said he's actually, it's not in the picture, but he said he actually only has one toe. Nine of his toes were, were, were taken by the disease, um, just devastated physically by the disease. But the significance of human touch, man, we, we can love a touch. I think there's some people maybe even in this room and maybe not yet but I think there's people God's going to send here that they're going to come to City Church because it's the one time in a week where somebody will touch them. It's the one time in a week where, where this lonely, isolated person can come in and, and get a hug, get a high five, get a handshake, have somebody at the front door, man, our hosts who are out there at the front door greeting people, you guys have a bigger job than you realize. Man, there's more significance, man, for some people who come in to just have somebody stretch out their hand and say, I'm not intimidated by your socioeconomic status. I'm not intimidated by where you live. I'm not intimidated by how you dress. I'm not intimidated by what you look like or smell like or what's going on in your life. I love you because Jesus loves you. That touch can be so significant. So we're going to love with touch. What, what I want us to be, what I believe God is calling us to be, is a church that's willing to get our hands dirty. We, we were just in Los Angeles. Uh, down on Skid Row, and as we were on Skid Row handing out food and praying with people, uh, a car pulled up uh, of some individual who works for some organization down there, and he told us, he said, whatever you do, he said, you guys are doing a good thing, keep loving on people, whatever you do, don't shake hands with them, because they've got all kinds of junk that you're going to get to take home, and, and what I love is the Dream Center, the organization, organization we're working with said, no, we're down here to love these people, and we can't love them if we don't touch them. We're going we're gonna to wash our hands afterwards. We're going to sanitize and make sure that we're protected. But if we come down here and we're like, hey, how are we showing the love of Jesus? We're going to push through. We're not going to worry and, and be caught up in that. We're going to trust that God's going to protect us, and we're going to love these people. And I love that philosophy. I love that idea. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to love, number one, with touch. Number two, we're going to love the lonely by listening. We're going to love the lonely by listening. Most of us, uh, we listen to respond not to understand right like most of the time we're, we're listening looking for the opportunity where we get a chance to speak not listening for, for the chance to really understand so right now you can love your pastor well by listening to understand right we're going to listen well uh but I, I was guilty of this i've been guilty of this many times i know 
uh, in, in my marriage. There have been many times probably where this has popped up. But I remember one specific incident. I was at Buffalo Wild Wings with somebody who um, had some issues with my leadership, didn't like the way that I had handled something in their life and uh, wanted to, to share this with me. And we went through the conversation or whatever, and we got to the end, and this person told me, and I'll never forget this, they said at the end of it, they said, I don't feel like you were here to listen to what I told you. You were just waiting for a chance to tell me why I was wrong. And it broke my heart because he was right. At that moment, I knew it. It was just the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That was exactly what I had done. Now, I think the guy was wrong in a lot of his complaints, and I'll still stand by that. But my tone and my attitude in responding to him was completely wrong. we got to be listeners. And we got to love people by shutting up. You know the same letters in the word listen are the word, letters in the word silent? I don't think that's a coincidence, right? Like if you rearrange the letters, you get silent. Sometimes we got to shut up and actually listen to what people are saying. I think there are people probably in this room today that, that you would just die to have somebody sit down and listen to you pour out your heart for 30 minutes. How significant it would be to just have somebody who would listen to what I have to say, to just hear what's going on in my life, to hear my pain, my story, my struggle, whatever it might be. Um, Jesus was a great listener. Let me give you some context for where we're going in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, Jesus has been crucified. He's died. He's got all these followers in the city of Jerusalem who are now heartbroken. They're devastated. Their hopes, their dreams, their, their beliefs for the future, gone in a second. They've watched their friend, their rabbi, their leader, murdered brutally in front of their very eyes. So they're depressed. So in Luke chapter 24, Jesus is risen again. Word hasn't gotten out yet. And, and there's two of his followers who are on a walk to a town called Emmaus. And they're, they're dejected. They're discouraged. They're despondent. And Jesus joins them, but they don't realize that it's Jesus yet. And watch how Jesus uh, steps into their situation. Chapter 24, verse 17 says, Jesus asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? It's like, this is a big deal. This is a big story. Jesus is dead. How do you not know about this? Um, and here's what's awesome. In this moment, Jesus is the solution, right? Like, Jesus is always the solution. He's the answer in Sunday school. We all know that, right? But in this moment, the reason why they're upset is because Jesus is dead. And now Jesus is standing right there. All he has to do is say, aha, it's me, ta-da, right? Like all he's got to do is like have that surprise moment, gotcha. Um, like if I was Jesus, I'd have had a lot of fun with that. It's the reason why I'm not Jesus. One of the many, many, many reasons I'm not Jesus. Uh, but he just has to have this reveal, right? But he doesn't. He doesn't go right for the reveal. Instead, he asks this first question, what are you discussing as you walk along? He already knew what they were talking about. But then he asks another question. He says, what things? In verse 19, Jesus knew the things. He was the things that had been going on in Jerusalem. But he asked them the question, and I think it's very significant. I think Jesus is demonstrating that sometimes loving us is not just fixing everything that's wrong. Sometimes loving is just being with us in the midst of our brokenness. Sometimes loving is just simply being there in the midst of the challenge and the struggle. Um, one thing that I've begun to try to incorporate in my life is when, when I'm with somebody, my goal is to be interested, not interesting. I think a lot of times we, we, we focus on being interesting, and here's the funniest thing I can say, or the best story I can have, or the most interesting thing I can do. And, and so my goal, and this is not something I'm good at yet, but I want to be interested, not interesting. 
and, and I think a lot of us would get a lot from that if we would apply that when it comes to just sitting down with somebody and listening and helping them. There was a, an individual, I did a funeral a couple years back, and uh, after the funeral, I, I sat down with somebody who had been in relationship with this, this person who'd passed away, and this person who'd been in the relationship was just devastated, just crushed, just completely torn. Um, and, and I remember sitting there and feeling like I have nothing to tell this person. I have nothing to, I don't know, how do, how do you tell somebody who's, whose loved one just died, man, it's going to be all right, you know? How do you, how do you fix it? I didn't know how to fix it. I didn't have the fix. Um, and all I did is sit there and listen. And this person talked for like two and a half hours, and I just listened. And I felt so helpless. I felt so worthless in the conversation. But at the end of it, they said, man, thank you so much. That was exactly what I needed. I just needed to be able to tell somebody how this feels and what I'm going through. Um, and, and sometimes that's all we can do is listen. Sometimes we don't have every answer. I don't know the solution to, to every issue that our culture faces. I know it's always going to be Jesus, but I don't know, man, how do, how do we get every homeless person off the streets? I don't know. How do we feed every hungry person? I don't know. How do we get everybody and every issue and all marriages to fix and all this other stuff? I don't always know the solution, but I know that God's people can always listen. We, we can always take time and, and open up our ear, shut our mouth, and listen. So, so here's three questions that you can use if you want to become a better listener. Three questions you can ask that, that are going to help open the door of conversation as you love the lonely, whoever that may be in your world. Ask this question, how can I pray for you? And, and listen well, and then pray what they ask. Uh, how can I pray for you? Second question, would you, would you tell me your story? What, what's your story? Maybe that's your testimony. Maybe that's how you got here from whichever part of the country or whatever, but ask them for their story. Number three, it's a common question we ask, just change it by one word. Instead of asking, how are you doing, ask, how are you really doing, right? Because when we ask, how are you doing, like, we just have, like, the quick response, get it over with and move on. Most of the time when you ask somebody how you're doing, you don't really want them to tell you. Like, if you've ever been in that where you're in a hurry and, hey, man, what's going on? How are you doing? And they give you the real answer. You're like, oh, I didn't need that right now. I wasn't ready for that. I've been in that situation. But take this where well, you've got the time. Listen, how are you really doing? What's really going on in your life? What, what's God really showing you? Open that door um, and then just be a willing vessel to listen and hear what's going on in their life. So we love the lonely through handshakes and hugs with touch. Secondly, we love the lonely with listening. And number three, we're going to love the lonely with time. We're going to love the lonely with time. It's amazing how much Jesus did in three and a half years. If you read the Gospels, man, it's just incredible that that one person could accomplish so much. He's over here healing these people, and then he's over here talking to these people, and then he's teaching this guy, and then he's loving this person. He's demonstrating this. He's doing this miracle. Like, Jesus had it going on. He was, he was constantly accomplishing something new. And then it says that we only have a fraction of what he actually did written down for us, that there's so much more that he actually did. Um, what's amazing to that is in the midst of all the stuff that he did, Time and time again, Jesus gets interrupted. And every time Jesus gets interrupted, he makes time for the interruption. Every time somebody shows up and messes up Jesus' agenda, every time Jesus was on his way to this thing and to this event, and somebody says, no, hey, Jesus, I need this, Jesus made time for the interruption. He never got so rushed that he couldn't help someone out. So in this instance, in, in uh, Luke chapter 5, very famous story, Jesus is teaching in a house. And they only had one service. They didn't have two services. So the house was full, right? They're packed, and there's people out the door on top of each other. They don't have room for anybody else. And so these four guys have a friend who's paralyzed, and they've heard the stories of Jesus the healer. 
like, man, if we can get our friend to Jesus, maybe he can walk again. Let's, let's try it. And so they take their friend to the house, and they get to the house, and the house is completely full. They can't get inside, but these guys aren't going to be denied. So what do they do? You know the story. They go up on the roof. They open the hole on the roof. They drop the guy down in front of Jesus. So Jesus is in, and he's giving his talk to his city group. He's giving his sermon on Sunday morning on how to neighbor, and he's at point three, and he's about to bring point three, and boom, somebody falls in front of him. And what does Jesus do? He says, we'll get to point three later on. Let me deal with this here. And Jesus makes time for the need. He, he makes time for this individual. He, he says, your sins are forgiven. And oh, by the way, pick up your mat and walk. And does radically changes this individual's life. 180 degree, degree difference in his life. Why? Because Jesus made time. I'm not good at this one. I, I should not do this one from up here I should be like down here like laying on the floor because I'm terrible at this one because I've got my agenda and I've got my to-do list and I've got my schedule and all the stuff that needs to get done and and sometimes I am too busy to help somebody God's calling us to love people with time God's calling us to, to make room in our schedule to make margin in our day to where he could send us somebody who's broken he can send us somebody who's hurting he can send us somebody who's lonely and make time. Now, now we only have so much time in a day, but I think that's why this is so significant, because time is the most valuable gift you can give. Nothing is more valuable than time, because time's something you never get back, right? Like, you can give somebody money and go make some more money. You, you can give somebody your car and go get another car. Like, anything can be replaced except time. And so when we love somebody enough to give them time, we're giving them the most valuable resource we have. So we should use it well. We should be smart about how we invest it, but, but we need to make sure that we're loving people, loving the lonely, even with time. A, a number of years ago, I had moved out here uh, from, my family's in North Carolina. And so I, I moved out here, and I didn't have the, the money or the time to get home for Thanksgiving that, north, that year. Um, this is when I was still single and very early on in my time here. And Leonard and Paula Cochran um, actually invited me over to their house for Thanksgiving. Here I was, this, this one guy who, you know, I probably would have watched football on my couch and ate, like, pizza rolls or something for Thanksgiving <laughs> in my bachelorhood. Uh, but, but they loved me enough to, to invite me over. And here's what's so cool about this. They didn't drop all their Thanksgiving plans to, to love on this lonely kid. They just brought me into what they were already doing. I think sometimes we feel like, I just don't have time to meet one-on-one with somebody. I don't have time to do You don't have to do that. Just bring them along in what you already got going on. Bring him into the activities. Bring him into the stuff that, that's going on in your world. Hey, we're having dinner tonight. Why don't you come have dinner with us? Hey, we're, we're going to be out at the ballpark throwing a frisbee or, or hitting the ball. Why don't you come do this with us? Sometimes loving the lonely isn't dropping everything you have. Jesus didn't shut down the house and kick everybody out. He kept doing what he was doing, but he, he helped the man in the middle of it. And so sometimes I think we might make it too difficult for ourselves. That, man, I just don't have any time in the schedule to include anybody else. Well, maybe you don't have to open up something else in the schedule. Maybe you just need to bring somebody along with what you're doing. I don't know. Hopefully that encourages somebody. Um, I think we can do this. I think God is calling us to this, that that we can love the lonely with touch. We can love them with listening. We can love them with time. So all this brings us to the question as we get ready to close. What if it's you? You're the person here today, and we're talking about loving the lonely, and you're saying, Pastor Troy, I'm him. PT, that's me. I'm that lonely woman. I'm that lonely man. I'm that person who, who is experiencing relational poverty today. I, I think in some way it's all of us in our culture 
none of us have the significance of the relationships many times that, that God has called us to. But maybe some of us in this room are specifically in that place today. Um, if that's you, let, let me say just a couple of things. Uh, City Church is a family. We are a highly imperfect, sometimes dysfunctional family. <laughs> but we're a family. Um, and we love you. I love you. My wife loves you. We care about you. And, and if you are in that place, maybe we don't even know. Sometimes the loneliest people are the people who look like they got it all going together because you've just learned how to cope and learned how to put on that front. And everybody thinks, man, they are, they are in good shape. So maybe it just starts with just being humble enough to say, I need some help. I, I need to find some people. Another, another thing I would tell you to do if you're lonely is that next week we're going to be introducing you to all of our city group leaders for the fall semester. If you're lonely, you've got to get in a city group. You've got to get in a, in a small group of other Christians that you can begin to do life with. You're not going to meet people on Sunday morning and, and start massive, meaningful relationships. It just doesn't usually work that way. You might get to know somebody's name and maybe get their phone number. But actually finding people to do life with is going to happen a whole lot easier in a small group of people. Make the time in your schedule once a week to meet with some other Christians and, and begin to get to know some people. But know this. You, we love you. You're not here by accident. And even more than that, God loves you. He designed you. He made you in his image. He's got a plan for you, and he's got encouragement for you in his word. And I want to read this. If you're lonely today, I want to read this out and just speak this over you from Isaiah chapter 41. As the worship team comes down, don't get distracted by them. Just hear these words. These are the words of the God who made you. Maybe you're not lonely today, but you're going to be lonely eventually. Find this encouragement in this in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. The God who created you said this. He says, don't you be afraid, for I am with you. Aren't you glad he's with you? says, don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. Lonely person, you matter to us. But way more important, you matter to God. Don't feel like you're invisible. Don't feel like you can't be heard. God cares. He loves you. And because he cares, we care. And I said this once already, but I'm going to wrap with this. If we can't do this in here, We'll never do it out there. If we can't love the lonely in this room, if we can't reach out and build a relationship with somebody we don't know very well in another row in this room, how are we ever going to be used by God to reach the city? We, it's got to start here. It's not just here. There's applications at work and at school and in our neighborhood and all kinds of places, but it's got to start here. So my encouragement for all of us today is before you go today, get somebody's name and phone number that you don't have. Invite them to coffee. Invite them to throw a Frisbee. Invite them to, to watch a ball game. Like, whatever it might be, it could start with 30 minutes. You don't have to give them three hours of your Saturday. But, man, it can start very simple. But reach out, form a relationship. God's called us to connection. He says it's not good for man to be alone. But it's very good when God's people come together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.